I mentioned on Wednesday night that I've been reading a book by Pat Riley on the winning mentality. Uh, and as a coach, I, I'm always looking for something that's going to help me hopefully relay a message to the boys that they understand that it's, it's not about them, it's about the team and the importance of playing for each other uh, and, and accomplishing that common goal. And really, the more I read about through this book and read about the, the lessons uh, in, in sports, of course, it applies when we think about the kingdom. And you think about these lessons that can apply to the church. And so he has a chapter in this book called The Disease of Me. And he talks about the teams that he had, in particular the Lakers team that he had with, with such great talent and such great players. He talks about how they, they really should have blown everybody out, but there were times when they didn't win ball games they should have. And it goes back to this disease of me mentality. It was about me. And he talks about those who, even when the team does well, if that particular player had a bad night, then he's beating himself up instead of celebrating that the team won. And different things like that. He gives these seven danger signs to look out for to make sure you don't have that. Uh, it's not our goal this morning to look at those, but I did get this sermon idea from that title. And I thought about this as applying it to the church, applying it to the kingdom, and that is the sin of selfishness. The sin of making it all about me when it's really all about Him. And sometimes if we're not careful, we can do that. We can allow things to hurt our feelings, and then all of a sudden, well, I'm quitting the church. <laughs> As if that's something that, you know, something happened, well, I'm not coming. And instead of getting over things the way we should, we allow things to fester and make it all about us. Instead of about, well, if I'm not here, what am I going to do to my other brethren who need to be encouraged? Uh, what am I doing if I take myself out of active duty because I've got my feelings hurt about something? So again, if, if, we'll, if we'll empty ourselves and think about, you know, this is not about me, it's about others. It's, that's the true meaning of joy. I'm sure you've heard the acronym for joy, Jesus, others, and yourself last. That's how you can have and maintain pure joy in your life. And that's what we need. And so I'm hoping that this lesson uh, can help all of us to realize, hey, it's not about me. It's about others. Ultimately, it's about Jesus and how I can glorify God by helping other people. So as we think about this, I use this image because you'll notice you have the problem, the disease of me is selfishness, but what's the cure? It's selflessness. And we've been singing about Jesus this morning. You talk about the greatest example of selflessness the world has ever known. It was that of Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Though he were rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Jesus literally gave up the glory of heaven to come to this horrible earth in many, many respects. A world that lies in wickedness, John says. And walk upon this earth and to die on the cross for you and for me. And so as we think about how we can overcome the disease of me, we look unto Jesus and his example. As we introduce this study, we think about the fact that selfishness is the universal sin. Selfishness is the universal sin. And when you think about sin and, and how it got into this world, it all boils down to being selfish. Here's one definition of a person, action, or motive lacking consideration for others Concerned chiefly with one's own personal profit or pleasure. Merriam-Webster had this definition. Concerned excessively or exclusively with oneself. 
seeking or concentrating on one's own advantage, pleasure, or well-being without regard for others, arising from concern with one's own welfare or advantage in disregard of others. So again, it's the disease of me. That's the sin of selfishness. Let's think about it as we, again, introduce this. Selfishness brought sin into the world. Think about Eve. Adam and Eve, they had everything. But then here comes the serpent, and he comes, and he says, Did God really say don't do this? And she starts to recite things back, and she's starting to get confused herself. But then the Bible says that when Eve saw that it was good for food and pleasant to the eyes and able to make one wise, she took and ate and gave it to her husband. So what's the real root of the problem? Selfishness. Instead of, no, God said, I I don't need to do this. By doing that and giving in, then ultimately she gave in to Adam and gave it to Adam, and now sin's in the world. And we think about the problems that that has caused, of course, uh, throughout the, the history of the world. Selfishness brought murder into the world, which, of course, is sin. Genesis chapter 4. Here's Cain and Abel. Abel offers something more excellent. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4. Cain doesn't. Cain is, is from a selfish motive, is filled with this envy in his heart, and he goes and he kills his own brother. Why? Selfishness. That's the root of the problem. Selfishness brought destruction to the world by the flood. Genesis chapter 6. Because God saw that man's heart was only evil continually. The imagination of each man's heart. It's all about him or her. It's all about what I want. I'm going to do what I want to do. Do we see that in our world today? Me, me, me? What, can, what about me? It's been going on for a long time. The disease of me. Selfishness brought an end to world empires. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel sees and has that dream. Think of the images that he sees with Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, ultimately Rome. Look at their leaders. What happened? Think about Nebuchadnezzar, for example. Nebuchadnezzar walks out and says, Look at the kingdom which I have built. Look at what I have done. Well, then Babylon fell. Because God's the one that rules in the kingdoms of men. Which that's really the point of the book of Daniel. It's to show God's sovereignty. So it brought an end to world empires. Selfishness brought pain into David's world. 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Remember what happened with David? He should have been out with kings go to battle, but he stayed in Jerusalem. He saw Bathsheba. That does not belong to him. That was Uriah's wife. And yet he saw her. And he decided to go the extra mile, gave in to lust, James chapter 1, 13 and 14, which of course gave birth to sin. And that led to conspiracy for murder. That led to to giving his neighbor drink. Habakkuk says that's sinful. You go through all this list, what's the core? What happened? Selfishness. This is what I want for me. Selfishness brought an end to Judas' world. John chapter 13, we're reminded that Judas was the one in charge of the money bag. And Judas had a problem with greed. You remember when the woman had that costly oil, that costly ointment, and she broke it over the Lord? Judas is the one to say, hey, we could have taken this and, and sold it and given it to the poor. And the Bible says he didn't really say that because of that. Because of selfishness. And ultimately he would take his life. We read about that in Acts chapter 1. Selfishness brought division. To congregations of the Lord's church in the first century. To atrophies who love to have the preeminence. It's all about me. And again, we look at the Lord's church today, and unfortunately there are still those who have the diatrophy syndrome. It's my way or the highway. I'm going to do what I want to do. Not stopping to think, this is not my church. It belongs to Jesus. He's the one who purchased the church with his own blood. 
Acts 20 and verse 28. And of course, selfishness plagues many today in our world. When you think of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, preceded by the works of the flesh, in that list of the works of the flesh is selfish ambition. That is a sinful work of the flesh. And we're going to think about that here in just a moment. But I wanted us to think about how horrible selfishness really can be and look what it has led to throughout the sands of time. Continuing to think about this word selfishness as it is used in the scripture, you find it four times. You find it in the New Testament. And every time you find it, it's followed by the word ambition, which I thought was really interesting. And so here are those passages if you'd like to have them. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Of course, Paul writing to the brethren there. Uh, he says, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions. And look at the list around it. Backbitings, whisperings, conceits, and tumults. Galatians chapter 5, we mentioned a moment ago. Look at the list. Works of the flesh. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred. All this in connection with selfish ambition. The disease of me. Philippians chapter 1, Paul talks about those who were preaching Christ. They're preaching, but look why they preached. They preached from selfish ambition. There are those who use the pulpit as their own personal platform, and that is wrong. And they'll stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, give an account for that mentality. James chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Don't be many teachers, you'll receive a stricter judgment. Uh, because you have this privilege and opportunity of preaching, but you do it for the Lord's glory, not for your own, nobody else's. And unfortunately, there are those who, even in Paul's day, who did that. Not sincerely, notice that. And then Philippians chapter 2, which is kind of the main text we wanted to think about uh, and, and piecing this all together, you see the problem and the, the solution in this one verse. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but how do we respond? In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. If we had that mentality, we could get rid of the disease of me. And selfishness wouldn't be as big of a problem. Of course, in that context, we're going to come back to it with Jesus later in Philippians 2, 5 and following. But these passages show us what selfishness could lead to. And again, selfish ambition is one word in the Greek. And it means a strong drive for personal success without moral inhibitions. In other words, I don't care what I have to do. I'm going to do it because that's what I want to do. Um, and I understand the reality that at the end of the day, people are going to do what they want to do. You can't force anybody to do anything. I'm going to do what I want to do. But if you're going to be a Christian, that mentality has to cease. That mentality has to die, according to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That's the whole point. It's not about me, it's about him. And so with that thought in mind, I kept going through so many examples We've already mentioned a few, and I realized there's no possible way I could put all this in one sermon. And so when I kept going back to Old Testament examples and New Testament examples of selfishness on one hand and selflessness on the other, and I kept going back to the book of Esther. And it, maybe you studied the book of Esther in detail. Maybe you haven't studied it in a long time. Maybe you've never really studied it before. Well, this morning we're going to walk through the account of the book of Esther. And we're going to think about how selfishness is on display and selflessness is on display. And hopefully we can learn uh, some lessons from this Old Testament book of the Bible. As we think about the example of selfishness, we're going to talk about Haman. Haman is an interesting individual. 
but I believe he fits this bill perfectly uh, when you think about selfishness. And let me say this too. When we talk about the story of Esther, please understand we're not talking about once upon a time in a faraway galaxy. There are those today who are so critical of the Word of God and say, well, it's just a book of made-up stories. Absolutely not. And young people don't buy into that lie because people are going to tell you that. When you go into college, the professor, well, that's just a book of stories. No, no, no. In fact, Peter went against that, didn't he? We have not followed cunningly devised fables, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 19-21. So when we hold the Word of God in our hand, this is not a man-made storybook. This is the breathed-out Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So when you hear me say, or Brother Gene or whoever say, the story, we're not talking about once upon a time. This is a real-life account of something that happened. But with that, we still understand the language of the story of Esther. Just like when we sing the song, Tell Me the Story of Jesus, we know that was no made-up story. It was according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. As we think about this account, I just want you to picture this in your mind. If you have your Bible, I invite you to Esther chapter 3. We're going to work our way up to this point as we think about these passages of Scripture with Haman. But just to kind of piece everything together, remember that King Ahasuerus is the one on the throne. Uh, Babylon has already been the world power. Now here comes Persia. And you have those who had the uh, decree from Cyrus to come back home. And a lot of Jews did come back home. But a lot of Jews kind of got comfortable where they were and they stayed put. But here in the land of Susa, this is the important region here in the Persian Empire, you have King Ahasuerus who is on the throne. Well, this king decides to have this, this party. And it's no normal party. This is for days and days and days and days and days. Over 100 days of this party. Well, then it ends, and he says, we need to party some more. And he tells the men, don't hold back. No constraint. Drink all you want. Party all you want. That's exactly what he does. Well, in this drunken stupor of, of, of everything that's going on, he wants his queen, Queen Vashti, to come and essentially to perform for all these men that are there. And we accommodate Queen Vashti and her integrity because she says, I'm not doing that. And young ladies, please understand the importance of that example of Queen Vashti. She said, I'm, that's, not, mm -mm, that's not what I'm doing. I'm a woman of God. I'm not going to be a spectacle. I'm not going to be out there uh, for all these men to, to, to look at and to treat me that way. That's not what's happening. You have intrinsic value that's so incredibly important. When you think about Queen Vashti, she said, I'm not going to do it. And so the king, of course, gets very upset. He says, fine, I'll do away with her and I'll just find somebody else. Well, then it comes, you read in Esther chapter 2, where Esther is going to be the one. And, of course, she's a Jew. She's an orphan. Her father and her mother had died. So her cousin Mordecai takes her. And now Mordecai is kind of the father figure in her life. And so here you have these, these two Jewish people in this land. You have the king who is really exercising his power and says, I need another queen. And it just so happens that Esther is going to be the queen for King Ahasuerus. Well, now we're introduced to O Haman, Esther chapter 3. Let's look at this together. After these things, the things that we've just discussed, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha and the Agite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. Now you wonder if that got to Haman's head. We'll, we'll notice that it certainly did. But look at the end of verse 2. But Mordecai would not bow 
or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them. They told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Hashuerus, the people of Mordecai. We pause there for a moment. This is, this is massive in the scheme of redemption. Now you'll notice as you read and study the book of Esther, the name God, God's name is not found in the book. But to say that God is not active in the book of Esther is to not read the book of Esther. His providence is seen all throughout this. But what would have happened if Haman, because of this disease of me, because one person didn't bow down to him, he said, well, fine, I'm just going to wipe out all the Jews. What would have happened if he would have done that? There would be no Messiah. There would be no Jesus coming to the world. So when you study the book of Esther, understand how crucial all of this is that God would, of course, have his providential care uh, and his hand involved. Dropping down to verse 7 of Esther 3, In the first month of month of Nisan, the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, before Haman, to determine the day and the month until it fell in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. What a harsh way of, of putting that. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. The king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamathadatha, the, the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. And so verse 12 says, The king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, the governors who were over each province, the officials of the people, to every province according to its script, to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. So here's Haman who's going to use his position that we just read about earlier, that King Ahasuerus has put him in this position. Now he's wanting to use this to further his own agenda. He says, this one man won't bow down to me, so you know what? Let's just take all the Jews out. And King, I want you to write it. Why is that significant? The law of the Medes and Persians could not be altered. If you write that down, it's going to happen. Remember Daniel in the lion's den? The people were trying to bring Daniel down. They couldn't. They said, we, we don't have anything against him. He, he's a righteous man, and we can't do it. So I tell you what, let's put in the law. Anybody who prays to the God of heaven, we're going to throw him into a lion's den. And Daniel went home and said, all right, opened his windows and prayed three times to the God of heaven. They said, you go ahead and do that, but I'm going to obey God. But that's a point that when it was written down in the law of the Medes and Persians, it was an unalterable law. You could not change it. It was going to happen. And so Haman's doing everything he can to promote himself. And said, let's put it in writing and let's make sure that this gets done. We're going to fast forward to Esther chapter 5. A lot's going to happen. We're going to come back to see what Esther does. But I want us to focus on Haman first as we think about selfishness. 
Esther chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Now again, this is the disease of me, isn't it? Selfishness. He's so mad, he's filled with indignation. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself. He went home. He sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Talk about somebody suffering from the disease of me. He, he wants to remind them of who he is. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Haman says, I'm not going to be able to sleep at night until something's done about Mordecai. Because he won't bow down to me. He won't pay homage to me. And so he's throwing his sucker in the dirt. That's what's happening. Uh, to put it in, in, in lamest terms. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, I'm in verse 14 of chapter 5, said to him, Let a gallows be made, fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. Now, that, that's backwards reasoning, isn't it? Let's hang this innocent man, then go marry to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. When you come into chapter 6, we read that night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the books of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. This is a great practice, by the way. Go to sleep reading your Bible. That is some good sleep. Go to sleep praying to God. Uh, that's the best way you can do it. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of uh, these two individuals, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? King's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So here's the king says, Hey, we need to honor Mordecai. And here's Haman says, Hey, we need to hang Mordecai. So we think about the drama that's unfolding. We drop down to verse 5. King's servants said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, Let him come in. Haman came in, the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, now what's Haman going to do? Because he suffers from the disease of me, Haman's like, oh, hey, this is all about me. Look at the language. Now, Haman thought in his heart, who would the king delight to honor more than me? Is there anybody better in the kingdom than me? Haman says, this is, this is awesome, this is great. Verse 7 Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So Haman says, All right, this is great. I'm going to have my own party, and I'm going to give all the details. Here's what needs to happen. It needs to be this massive spectacle. He's going to ride in on a horse. And who's Haman thinks going to do it? Himself. This is, this is my party. And I'm going to give all the details of what's going to happen. I love this. Look at verse 10. 
King said to Haman, hurry and take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. Haman messed up, didn't he? He went too far. He said, this is going to be for me, but the one in whom the king delighted was not Haman, not the one who has a disease of me, but Mordecai, who we're going to talk about when we go back to chapter 4 here in just a moment. And so Haman took the robe and the horse, I would say reluctantly, arrayed Mordecai, led him on horseback to the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. Here's the man who said it's all about me and now he's at home and he's just got his, he's, again, he threw his sucker in the dirt. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife said, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. So still in the back of Haman's mind, well, Esther invited me and the king, and the only ones who were coming to this party, So he's still suffering from the disease of me. Nothing's really helped him yet. So as we dive into chapter 7, we close our thoughts on Haman. Let's notice what happens. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. And Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, If it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition, and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? Who was it? It was Haman. It was the king's right-hand man who was so focused on himself that he hung the gallows for somebody else. And what we're about to read is that he hung himself on his own gallows. And that's what happens to those who are filled with the disease of me. Those who suffer from a selfish attitude hang themselves on their own gallows that they make. Haman was terrified before the king and the queen because, verse 6, Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is wicked Haman. King arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine. He went to the palace garden, but Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life. For he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden, the palace of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. The king said, will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? Haman's just, he's making it worse, isn't he? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And one of the eunuchs said to the king, look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. The king said, hang him on it. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's wrath subsided. You can't make this up. (laughs) This is amazing to think about what happened with Haman. 
But I believe there's a great lesson for us when it comes to selfishness. Haman was so filled with pride that it led to his own fall. And the Bible teaches that's what's going to happen. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If I'm filled up with pride, it's all about me, me, me. That's what I can look forward to. It's falling and falling short of what God would have me to be. Haman sought to destroy the Jews, but he ended up being the one that was destroyed. Again, that's Esther chapter 7 and verse 10. And then Haman felt that he deserved to be honored and exalted. But those who, hum- those who honor and exalt themselves will be humbled by God. Those who humble themselves will be exalted by God. Jesus, of course, taught that lesson, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 12. There's the example then of selfishness, and that is the example of Haman. With our time remaining, we're going to work through this very, very quickly. Let's think about the example of selflessness, and that, of course, is the example of Esther. We go back into the narrative account, back to chapter 4. Now, this is, of course, after Haman has suggested, let's wipe out the Jewish people. And so Mordecai learned all that had happened. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out to the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate, clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. See, that's, that's the point. If Haman's decree, if, if this is written down by King Ahasuerus, and it's written down, it's going to happen. And they're going to wipe out the Jewish nation. They're going to annihilate them. It'll be, it'll be done. All because Haman didn't like the fact that Mordecai didn't bow down to him. They were going to wipe out a whole nation of people. Verse 4 says that Esther, of course, was also deeply, deeply distressed. And so Esther uh, called one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. Mordecai told him all that had happened, the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay, gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, and of course, this is very sad, very uh, alarming to everybody. Dropping down to verse 10, Esther spoke and gave a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king in these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Did you catch what Esther just said? If you go up to the king unannounced, he will put you to death. But if you go and approach the king and he holds out the golden scepter, that means you have an opportunity to give a request. Esther says, he may do that, he may not, but I'm going. Because if somebody doesn't do something about it, they're going to wipe out the Jewish nation. She understands as the queen, as the king's wife, she has the opportunity to do this. But what a selfless act, and what a selfless attitude that she had. Verse 13, Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise to the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And here's that famous line, Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for t- such a time as this. There's great practical application to us today. Who knows? And in this time and in this town, in this community, 
the workplace that you're at, the school that you're at, the sphere of influence that you have at this time, who knows? If you're in the kingdom for such a time as this, you can impact somebody in such a positive way that can affect generations to come. No doubt that's what's happening here with Esther. Look at as we close out this chapter, Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther is willing to give her own life for the nation. She's willing to, to take the chance to go before the king knowing that she may die. And Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Making our way into chapter 5, it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes. She stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. And while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house, so it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she found favor in his sight. And notice, the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Can you imagine the relief that Esther must have felt? For all these time, fasting and mourning, thinking, you know what, I could go in, and if he don't hold out that golden scepter, I'm going to die. But then he holds out that golden scepter, and again, what a relief that must have been. Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. King said, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I prepared for him. King said, Bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. The king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And so we've already noticed what took place there. But verse 6 says, At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? And Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Esther uses great wisdom to make sure that she finds favor in the sight of the king, that she has everything ready, everything is built up. She knows what's going to happen. But what selfless, what, what selflessness she showed, what courage that she showed, and no doubt what faith she showed in going before the king. We come into chapter 6. Last thing we want to look at here before we look at uh, a few, a few mo uh, notes here in chapter 9. You think about the language in chapter 7 beginning. When the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and Esther said, We have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. She pleads this case, and now we go back to it and see how much, how important this really was. Had we been sold as male and female, I would have held my tongue. The enemy can never compensate. In other words, here's the request. Here's why I've come. Here's why she was in the kingdom at such a time as this, to plead for the Jews. We've read the account of what takes place in Esther chapter 8. Esther saves the Jews. She's the one responsible for going to the king, sticking her neck out on behalf of others. And dropping down to verse 16 of chapter 8, it says, The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. In every province and every city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. 
And many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Her act of selflessness impacted others to come and to serve the true God of heaven. And what a great example for us. Chapter 9, 26 through 28, we read about the Feast of Purim. And now they're going to have this feast in which they celebrate the opportunity that they were spared from annihilation. Esther risked her life for the Jewish nation. She realized her opportunity and responsibility to use her position to preserve the Jews. And again, that's a lesson for us. What doors of opportunity has the Lord opened for you to impact others in a positive way? And it could be the smallest it could be the smallest door. It could be the smallest entrance. Maybe it's just a coworker that you have that you could influence in a positive way to get them into a Bible study. Maybe it's a roommate that you have at college. You've met them for the first time, and they notice every Sunday, every Wednesday, you're at service. And every, t- every evening before you go to bed, you're, you're spending time in, in Bible study and prayer. That will have an impact. And so there are things that we can do, like Esther did, to be selfless. And by putting others before herself, a feast would be set in place for the Jews to celebrate their deliverance and freedom. So this morning, if you suffer from the disease of me, understand that the cure to selfishness is selflessness. And so hopefully this example from the book of Esther will come to our minds and we can remember this and it can help us. So remember, Haman's selfishness led to his destruction. Esther's selflessness led to her exaltation. On a grander scheme, looking at this even deeper, it was Satan's selfishness that led to his destruction. He and others decided to rebel against the Lord. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus says, Depart into uh, this place prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is a prepared place for an unprepared people, just as heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. But God has prepared this place for those who suffer from the disease of me. Selfishness is the universal sin. But of course, we close with Jesus and his selflessness, which led to his exaltation. And we come back to that original text in Philippians chapter 2. Paul said, let nothing be done through strife or selfish ambition, but let each esteem others better than himself. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God thought it not Robert to be equal with God, but he he took on the form of a servant. He made himself of no reputation and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him, giving him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, that Jesus is Lord of the glory of God the Father. That scene never happens if Jesus isn't selfless. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have put an end to it. But that selfless mentality, not my will, but your will be done, is what provides salvation for all people today. So many lessons that we can learn from Esther. We've really only touched the hem of the garment. But again, I do hope that this will help you. And if you suffer from the disease of me, be selfless like Jesus. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. James chapter 4 and verse 10. If you're not a Christian this morning, die to self and put on Christ in baptism. Make sure that if you do suffer from this, then realize this is not about me. Jesus took my place on the cross. And so I can't afford to be selfish. I need to be like my Lord.
I need to be like Jesus who died for me. If you believe that he's the Son of God, willing to repent, willing to confess with the mouth that he is Lord, then you can be baptized, immersed into Christ, come in contact with his blood, have all your sins washed away, and rise to walk in newness of life, according to the Scriptures, Romans 6, 3 through 6. But it may be that as a Christian, as a child of God, you think about some of the things that we've talked about, and you say, you know what, deep down, I'm suffering from the disease of me. I've made it about me. I haven't been thinking about other people enough. I haven't been sacrificial in giving my time, my energy for other people. Maybe you need prayers for strength and encouragement to make sure that you don't have that attitude any longer. But hopefully all of us today can learn to not be selfish, but to be selfless.